This is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Well, Danny and Paul, welcome to show 11 of Jordan Space. It really only seems like five minutes ago when we first accepted Steve Twynham's offer to host a show on Yawa Radio. And here we are, 10 shows under our belt and two of the most listened to talks globally on Mixcloud, the hugely popular music podcast and streaming service. As we're coming toward the end of 2022, I thought it would be good to reflect on the show so far, some of the highlights we've listened to, and the show's relevance, really, in terms of the Jordan Legacy suicide prevention work. Paul, let me ask you, how do you feel Jordan Space is supporting the Jordan Legacy's mission? Well, we've um, we've always said, Steve, that talking about suicide is at the heart of suicide prevention and sometimes people say we need action not just talk and we reply by saying we'll talk yes that's true but talking is action (laughs) in regards to suicide prevention Uh, and we've always wanted to um, you know use evidence and and draw from experience and in particular listen to and and learn from people with lived experience of, of suicide and I think Jordan Space has given us a wonderful opportunity to have those conversations you know a fortnightly radio station talking about suicide prevention i really feel it's 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 a breakthrough and also it's provided a great platform for a a diverse range of people uh, to share their experiences and and we can all reflect back on previous shows and think about ones that have particularly stuck in our minds but as we go through we'll continue to have these diverse perspectives yeah, it's really interesting uh, what you say about breakthrough there, Paul, and, and it being you know very, very different in, in terms of what else maybe we're seeing in the world of suicide prevention. It's really mindful of a, of a comment um, from somebody on a video of, of me speaking uh, very recently and uh, sharing my story. Uh, and the person said it, you know, it was really very different and quite powerful to actually see me rather than just see a written post by an author. And I think that's very true of what we're doing with the show here, that, that we're actually hearing the voices of those people yeah. with lived experience rather than just seeing a written post. And I think the radio has a particular um, you know, power to it. Obviously, you know, seeing those videos can have a real impact on people, reading articles, facilitated conversations, events, panel discussions, all the things that we do with the Jordan Legacy uh, are all you know having impact in different ways but I think radio 
it's quite rare that people sit down these days. People's attention spans are very short. It's quite rare that people sit down and actually listen to something for an hour. And we've had a lot of feedback from people saying that's exactly what they've done with this radio show. Danny, what are your thoughts on uh, what you feel Jordan Space is achieving? Yeah, well, just going back to sort of the importance of lived experience in mental health and suicide prevention, you know, we always talk about um, its significance in helping to improve our understanding of these issues to help in prevention planning and helping in developing efficient services and reducing stigma. And the show really provides a platform for people with lived experience and with skills and knowledge on these topics to be able to do this. And I think that for listeners and people that may be going through similar experiences, one of the key messages that we can take away from all of the shows is that even in the worst of times, things can get better and there is hope. I think that's a really important message. And of course, we we always end every show on on a message of hope, which is, is really important. We've covered a number of themes during the 10 shows so far, everything from burnout with Dr. Sonia Hutton-Taylor to looking at suicide through a child's eyes with Police Sergeant Elaine Malcolm. Paul, what are some of the topics Jordan Space has covered which have struck a chord with you in particular and and why? I think there's been a number of topics and themes uh, and and just, just points that have been made that have stuck in my mind. And then obviously there's been particular guests that we've had which have... Um, you know, uh, which have resonated in, in particular. Uh, I, I can pick out, you know, I could I could name name names. I mean, the second one show we had Sangeeta, I remember, and I just could listen to Sangeeta for forever. She's just got this incredible insight and and sort of soothing aspect to the way she talks about suicide loss and, and all the issues around it. Uh, but I think the again, it's the diversity of different experiences. It's, you know, people have lost a child's lost a parent, you know, lost lost a sibling, um, people who've had all sorts of different mental health challenges, hearing from people who've made suicide attempts uh, or knowing somebody who, who, who've made suicide attempts. You know, I think this is what we need to keep bringing out, the diversity of experience, because there are people like yourself who do an incredible job of getting out there and raising the profile, but the vast majority of people who experience suicide loss aren't talking about it publicly uh, and often don't feel safe talking about it comfortably and I think again what we're doing here is creating a safe supportive environment trying to encourage people and and on that note Elaine Malcolm sticks in my mind because she was effectively talking publicly about losing her dad for the first time after I think it was 27 years so that one was it was a, a particular one that stuck in my mind. Yeah, I mean, giving giving a voice to people who, who have not been heard is, you know, kind of an important part of the, of the work we're doing, of course. Danny, how, how about you? Has there been a particular show that really resonated with you? Yeah, like Paul said, we've had a fantastic diverse range of guests on the show, but I think in terms of resonating with me, probably have to be our last episode um, and our interview with Debbie Rogers from Sean's Place. Um, I suppose me and Debbie are quite similar. We both lost our brother to suicide. Um, both They were both 34 and, and within months of each other. And I think also with our vision of creating Jordan's Place, places like Sean's Place help us to envisage the sort of thing we could create and what's proven to be working well and supporting people and improving their mental health. Um, we know from our experience with Jordan that medication and therapy didn't work for him and that somewhere like Sean's place could have potentially been the kind of support he needed and that we need more places like this help that's more easily available and easily accessible so going back to what I was saying before about the importance of lived experiences and sharing stories of hope I think Debbie's story is, is a perfect example of this. 
Of course, one of the challenges with hosting a show like this is that we need a steady stream of guests to interview. Now, we've received lots of offers from people wanting to be on the show, but it's important that listeners to Jordan Space hear from a variety of different experiences. Our guest for today, um, we'll be speaking to very shortly, Steve Carr, um, has got an incredible backstory, and we're going to be sharing that very soon after this next track. This This is is Yawa Yawa Radio. Radio. You're listening to Yawa Radio, and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week. This week's inspirational book of the week is a gift, your self-help companion to life at crossroads by K. Rashi Kumar. You know, it's never too late in life for the time you begin is the right time. The very first responsibility on you is of yourself for who can love you more than you. Instead of just chasing your goals outside, you also need to look within to find answers to your many unsolved queries. Life is full of opportunities. You merely need to realise and recognise it. If you look forward for an everlasting companion to love, support and guide, you carry this handbook along and keep it within reach for a quick reference when at crossroads or in doubt. To understand myriad shades of your persona, A gift is the best solution. Have a delightful reading. This week's inspirational book of the week is a gift, your self-help companion to life at crossroads by K. Rashid Kumar. Welcome back. After experiencing several extreme personal challenges, including the death of a family member, homelessness, and multiple suicide attempts, this week's guest set about looking into how and why the system had failed him, and others, and why men in particular, struggled to ask for help. He asked himself the question, how can I change things for the better? I'd like to welcome to this week's Jordan Space, suicide first aid trainer and founder of Mind Canyon, Steve Carr. Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to have you join us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for inviting me onto the show here today. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's great, great to have you with us. Now, some of our listeners may recall that you joined us for one of the Jordan Legacies online panel discussion events back in August, and that was titled, Let's Talk About Suicide with a question mark. When you openly shared there about you having a mental health breakdown in the workplace seven years earlier, I'd like to start our conversation at that point in your life. Can can you tell us what happened at work that day or around that time? Yeah, sure. It was around late August of 2014 that I started to feel that I couldn't cope that well. Um, by this, what I mean is I was starting to neglect the small things in life, like when I'd get out of bed in the morning, I'd usually make the bed before I did anything else. Uh, so I'd stop making the bed. I would stop putting my clothes ready out uh, for the next morning. I would stop packing a gym bag. I would stop having breakfast. Uh, self-care, I was starting to neglect self-care as much. And also I was into fitness. So the fitness side of things for me meant in the mornings, I would get up, generally go to the gym or go for a walk or some form of exercise Um, but these things stopped and then I stopped uh, going to social events I started cancelling social events and I'd go to social I'd say that I would go to a uh, social event but cancel at the last minute and 
when I look back now, it's those small things in hindsight that I really realised were actually the big things. So the day in question started just like any other. I got up, had a cigarette and a coffee. Um, I used to smoke back then in 2014. You may not know that. Um, but I also worked for a very well-known cigarette manufacturer that has very close links to the F1 world in his business development manager. And so I made my way um, to my retailer, whoever it was that I was visiting on that day. But there were several events throughout the day that had an impact on my mental health that led to that breakdown, which would include my expenses not being paid in on time, therefore not having enough money for fuel, not having enough money for lunch or not having enough money to pay my rent. And sadly, at the time as well, my performance was under review. So all of these events had an impact on my mental health and which led up to the point where I experienced a mental health breakdown. I was actually in a retailer's uh, at the time and I'd received a call from my manager. It wasn't a particularly positive call. And I just recall that I felt all this pressure building in my head, the anger that felt that nobody cared. And I just felt like my world was crashing around, down around me. And this just led me to just crying in my retailers and he was absolutely shocked um to see this you know me experiences and me experiencing this in his shop a grown man just breaking down and crying you know i think it's really interesting steve thank you for sharing that first of all you know i i, I deliver talks myself regularly to organizations and you know one of the things we talk about is spotting the signs and you've just described you know lots of small things that kind of built over time, but but some of those things would be noticeable to others. We're recording this show in November, which of course is now known to many people, especially men as Movember. In, in your view, how much of you not disclosing about your mental health illness was related to the stereotypical man up, toxic masculinity culture that we often hear about? Yeah, it's. I would say that quite a lot of this comes down to, well, my particular experience of this, a lot of this comes down to conditioning. So as young boys, um, we're often told things like man up or big boys don't cry or like my mum used to say when something, uh, when I used to cry, when when I fall over or have an accident, she'd go, stop crying or I give you something to cry about. Um, these are the kind of things that we were heard and told um, when we were younger. So what does this do with all our feelings and emotions as young boys? Well, it teaches us not to express our emotions or our feelings. And then later in life, and that can prevent us from asking for help because it makes it look like it was a, like it's a weakness asking for help. And like you say, this stereotypical man up and toxic masculinity sadly can come from a well-meaning parent. And they've told us something in our younger years, generally before the age of seven, when we take everything on and everything that we've been told at that time is so meaningful that it prevents us from asking for help in later life and you talk about being being a young boy and being told you know stop crying or i'll give you something to cry about i, w I wonder whether those same uh, words were used to young girls at, at the time uh, my, my instinct is to say possibly not um but you're right you know that that is going to have a huge impact on you know a young boy and and as it grows older now, Steve, I've, I've heard you say before how you believe that the mental health breakdown you had stemmed from your childhood. Uh, and I've heard your story, but most of our listeners may not have done. Would you be happy to tell us a little bit about your upbringing, which I believe was in, in Swindon? And, uh, of course, uh, the tragic experience and, and loss you suffered in your family when you were still quite young. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the day that I experienced that mental health breakdown, it wasn't solely just about work. Whilst it was a contributing factor, there were many other events that I experienced throughout my lifetime that led up to that point. So for me, it all started in my childhood. I grew up on a council estate in Swindon in a working class family of five. Uh, my dad was a mechanic. My mum was a stay-at-home housewife. I held an, had an older brother Paul so he was older by a year and a younger sister Claire who she was younger by a year and it was a very traumatic childhood for me both of my parents were emotionally and physically abusive and both emotionally unavailable my needs as a child were very very rarely met and by the age of 14 I'd started to use unhealthy coping mechanisms, drinking and using drugs as a way of coping. Now, I started associating sorry, with other children just like me from broken homes uh, where they were neglected as children. And so I kind of felt heard around those other people and I felt valued and needed around those other people as well. So we were all using unhealthy coping mechanisms very, very young on. Um, in our lives and I just remember I was 15 years of age and it was Friday the 13th of September 1991 and I'm at the breakfast table and my brother has come down to join me by this time um, he's out working with my dad and I just recall Friday the 13th September 1991 he came down and he said Steve um, what are you doing this evening would you like to come and meet my new girlfriend at a place called Acres Way and I knew of the road, um, but I said to him I'd already had other plans. So I said, maybe next time. And so he went off to work. I went off to school, came home from school that day, got changed like any other normal day and just went out and met up with friends. Later that evening, I came back. Um, it was just before it got dark. And I just recall walking in to the house and I just see my dad pacing. He's pacing up and down the living room. And this is unheard of because he's normally watching things like Blockbuster or Knight Rider or the A-Team. You may recall that from back then. I'm showing my age here now. And um, I just remember he's pacing in the living room and I asked him what was wrong. And he said, there's been an accident where your brother is. And so we've got the news on. We've got the television on waiting for local news. And we just hear on the radio that there's been this big accident. Now, my brother was due home an hour after I was, and he didn't arrive back home. So my dad said, I'm going to go to this site, see where Paul is. And so he said, if he comes back, just tell him to wait here. So my dad went off to Acres Way, and an hour later, he come back. And still no sign of my brother. My dad come back, and we're all extremely worried. It was in further three hours later. Uh, it was around about 11 o'clock at night. We received uh, a knock at the door and my dad and pretty much all of us rushed to the door. I stood behind my dad with my sister, my mum. We're all at the door. My dad opens the door and there's two police officers at the door. And one of the police officers says to my dad, Mr. Carr. My dad replies, yes. He said, I'm afraid we've got some tragic news. Your son, Paul, has been killed by a drunk driver this evening along with five other children, the youngest being seven years of age. And I recall that day very vividly. I remember all the actions. I remember everything, all, everything that we had experienced, the emotions, everything that came up that day, still so vividly. 
and this was back in 1991 and so that's what led up to that point in 1991 but there were so many more events that happened in my life including uh losing my house uh, becoming addicted to illegal drugs and then finally led up to the point much later in life where I attempted to end my life by suicide multiple times. Um, thanks, Steve. Really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, obviously, a hell of a lot to have to deal with there. And I know that people who've experienced what you've experienced there um, with the trauma and, and what you said about you know, your brother, um, I, I presume there was an element of you know, you might have been there and, and I don't know, survivor guilt and all those kind of complex issues. Um, but earlier also, also you were talking about the issues at work, the financial pressures, you know, there's so much wrapped up in there. And, um, you know, I just wonder if you, you know, can sort of bring that together in terms of how those factors lead to a suicidal crisis. Suicide is very, very complex. And it's something that I say on my courses, which is it, suicide doesn't happen and it's very rare that it happens off the single event or factor there's several events several factors that could come into play so things like um biological factor past history current life events and environmental factors that lead a person up to that point so we can see from my experience that what led me to suicide was the traumatic upbringing, the use of alcohol and drugs, all these unhealthy coping mechanisms to be able to try and cope because sadly my needs were never met from very young. Now with this traumatic event that happened to me with the death of my brother as well, sadly this, the trauma, it was something that I carried around for a very long time because at the time, back in 1991, uh, help for mental health was, wasn't readily available as what it is today. And so sadly, my father chose not to accept any form of help for himself, my mum or my sister. So we were living with that grief. And for me, I live with that until it was just six years ago, seven years ago now, seven years ago now, when I experienced the breakdown, I knew that I needed therapy. I knew that I needed trauma therapy. I knew that I needed counselling. I knew that I needed lots of different types of therapy to help me through this experience. So the death of my brother, the homelessness, the living on the streets, all of these events led me to the point where I just thought the pain was so, so immense. All I wanted to do was end that pain. And so that's why suicide became an option for me. The pain was just too unbearable to live with. Steve, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I understand that a culmination of these childhood experiences and, and the other issues finally surfaced in the form of a complete mental health breakdown some 25 years later, um, at which stage you received a diagnosis of PTSD. How did that diagnosis change your life? Whilst initially it came as a shock, I wasn't altogether surprised after experiencing the childhood that I had and seen and heard I believe no child should be subjected to only it was the norm for me and it is for so many people so the diagnosis for me it really helped me understand more about myself what I could do to manage the symptoms and how I could share this with other people to say it's not the diagnosis and it doesn't define me 
But what I will do is let it help me manage those symptoms. So I was, I was really quite shocked in the fact that I, I thought, like many people, PTSD was really just experienced by those that have been to war or those that were in the army, et cetera, et cetera. But really, in reality, anybody can experience PTSD. So it's after an event that has caused them such internal pain. It, it, it's an experience of this, what comes out in the body, what is held in the mind. And that's exactly what it was for me. The, what happened, the, the therapist had told me that it all stemmed from the death of my brother, so it was almost 25 years later before I got that diagnosis of PTSD, but I was living with it unbeknown to me. So it makes me question is how many of us are living with mental health issues that we're unaware of? I understand that following this diagnosis, you really started to look at the issues around mental health and support. And, and that led you on quite a campaign and uh, a walk that I'd like you to, to, to share with us that really got some high profile media coverage what what was the the, the purpose of of that, of that walk for you what were you looking to achieve and can you tell us a little bit about the, the event at the time um i thought i wanted to go and do something meaningful uh, something meaningful for others but also f- solely focus on my recovery so i've just given a diagnosis of PTSD, high function anxiety, work-related stress, uh, depression, addiction, high function anxiety, uh, to name a few. And I thought, gosh, what can I do with this? Um, It was difficult. It was difficult to take on, but I knew that I needed to firstly get away from the environment that I was in. The environment that I was in was extremely toxic. The people that I was around were extremely toxic so I needed to get out so for me it was a case of I needed to be all in with this if I wanted to get better so I came up with the thought of wouldn't it be great to walk the entire length of Britain from Land's End to John O'Gross 874 miles to raise awareness for both mental health and homelessness specifically within men because we find it so difficult to talk I thought if I'm going to recover, if I'm going to tell people about this, I want everybody to know, because what I felt was that I hurt a lot of people um, in my time before that I went into recovery. But I wanted everybody to know that I, one, I was asking for forgiveness within this journey as well, but also for saying that a lot of this journey was down to my poor mental health and mental illness. So I wanted to show people that it was okay to ask for help and especially for men. So I contacted um, every newspaper, every local newspaper, contacted ITV and BBC News. And my story was aired on ITV and BBC News telling people the importance of reaching out for help before it's too late. I think it's amazing, Steve, that you managed to turn what was a terrible situation for yourself into something positive and something that would ultimately benefit others. Um, You obviously spoke with a lot of people on your walk. Um, What were some of the things that you learned from these conversations? I spoke to so many people on that journey. It was wonderful. I made a point every single day of approaching an organisation or two that helped people that were homeless. But also what I would do in the evening is feed the homeless. So I would find soup kitchens and serve at soup kitchens. So this was a way for me to give back. 
And I would talk to the people at the soup kitchens and ask them what they found that were some of the issues that they were facing. Also, I spoke to people that were millionaires. I spoke to people that were homeless. I spoke to people that had nothing. And so some of my takeaways from that journey was that we are much stronger than we think and that people are generally good. They want to help. But life isn't about doing it alone. And there's no shame in asking for help. These were my biggest takeaways. Having walked the entire length of Britain, met so many different people, we are more connected than we think. I think it's a lot of media negativity that is trying to drive us apart. And I understand from your experience of, of the walk and the many conversations you had that, that this led to you putting a, a report together that you ultimately took to, to Downing Street. What were some of the things in that report that you wanted the government to, to take on board? And what was the government's response then to that report? Yeah, after that three month walk, I came back and started piecing together uh, the report of my findings and the current failings within the mental health system to give to government. This was no easy task, but from somebody who had actually seen it, somebody that had been at the coalface would be able to give a much more accurate view of what the people's perception perspectives were. So the report found that there were huge gaps in knowledge. Uh, there was certainly a lack of funding and support and clear routes for people to get help. What I found was there were all the services, whilst many of them were absolutely wonderful, that they were deeply fragmented. So they were not working together. What I found was lots of the different services had different pots of money coming from government, but they were very protective over their pots of money. So they didn't actually work well together. So this I handed into the government in, in response to your question is um, how did they respond in typical government style? We'll pass it to the relevant departments and come back to you. Steve, obviously, I'm not surprised to hear that you didn't get uh, a response from the government. We've had previous guests on the show who've put petitions into Parliament and, and some forced a response through sheer weight of numbers of signatures and so on on petitions. But um Mostly, uh, it's a disappointment. We know that there's a lot we can do ourselves, there's a lot we can do with communities, but we also know that government has to play its part. You know, have you reflected on, on those two things, what you think people can do independently of government and what specifically we, we need government to do? Yeah, I think as individuals, there's so much that we can do. Having now had experience in the world of mental health and suicide prevention for the last seven years, what I'm finding is more people now are attending courses like the Mental Health First Aid course or the Suicide First Aid course, because we're now seeing that it's one government is changing so very quickly. So the people within government and there's no certainty from government. So we need to be taking it upon ourselves and to educate ourselves more about mental health and certainly with suicide prevention. What do I feel government could do? I feel government needs to be taking this more seriously. And it's certainly an issue that has been raised for many years. And it appears to be not such an important issue for government. It's always on the back burner. But what always gets me is surely if we're preventing more people from ending their lives by suicide, that's more people out to work, more people with meaningful lives. That's more people doing things things that they could enjoy surely that's worth investing in steve thank you for now we're going to take a short break to listen to some more music and when we come back i'd like to talk to you about 
how your experience led to you taking a new direction in your life, which in turn led to the work you do today. We'll be right back after this. Hello, hello, Russell here. Please come join me every Saturday, 3 till 6 p.m. for Russell's Resilience Radio Show. Fantastic music and resilience tips every Saturday, 3 till 6 p.m. Welcome back. You're listening to Jordan Space and we're talking with this week's guest, Steve Carr, suicide first aid trainer and the founder of Mind Canyon, an organisation which provides mental health and suicide prevention training and consultancy for companies and individuals. Steve, shortly before the break, we, we talked about your own experiences of mental health and suicide and about a high profile walk you undertook to try and encourage the government to plug the gaps in the mental health system. Ultimately, you were so disappointed with that response that you undertook to make that difference yourself. I understand that journey started when you decided to book yourself onto a mental health first aid course and a suicide first aid course, but that didn't happen immediately. Tell us about that part of your journey. Yeah, sure. So whilst walking Britain, what I decided to do was create a business. Uh, at the time, little did I know it would turn into a business. In fact, how it started was um, it was just a Facebook page called Mind Canyon uh, Mental Health and Mental Fitness. And then it evolved into a group within um, just a few weeks. And it was helping supporting people and guiding people to the relevant services um, that were available all throughout the United Kingdom. So what I was kind of doing there is just piecing together where all these services were, much like the service we've got now online, the Hub of Hope, which is a national database for mental health services. Um, I was trying to create something similar before becoming aware of uh, Hub of Hope that was. First of all, what I needed to do was actually attend one of the courses to understand more about mental health myself. So it was quite a period after I came back, uh, because what I tried to do was go back into the work that had contributed towards my poor mental health. So I actually tried to go back into business development, but found I couldn't go back into that industry just because it was too stressful. I've tried on many occasions. Um, and this is what I find with um, with people that experience poor mental health or mental illness. It might be the environments that they're in that are causing it. But like myself, you try to go back to it unbeknown that it is one of the factors that is causing it in the first place. So uh, my career took a complete turnaround and into the world of mental health and suicide prevention after attending these two courses. And I said to myself, when the time is right for me, I will go and deliver these courses. But what I'd like to make people aware of at this point is that I was still suffering when I came back from that walk. It was my recovery is still ongoing. It is every single day. And with the recovery journey, it is that it's not linear. There's no end point for me, but it's just about staying well. So I took a bit of time out focused on my recovery and it was almost three years after coming back after that event attending the courses that I was able to deliver the suicide first aid course and the mental health first aid course without it impacting my mental health or me becoming too emotional because what I realize is the course is about other people and their experience it's not about me whatsoever but it's about guiding those people through to know that there is hope about life. 
Perhaps quite a few of our listeners will be familiar with mental health uh, first aid training and that it does include how to support someone who is feeling suicidal. How, how does suicide first aid training differ? Yeah, really good question. I often get asked this, Steve. Um, with the mental health first aid course, it's like many of the other basic suicide understanding courses. It will teach you the theory. So it'll give you an understanding, it'll teach you what to say, but it doesn't allow you to take the practical steps, which is to actually have that conversation in a safe space. The difference being is the Suicide First Aid course is a one day course aimed at people that want to help people that are having thoughts of suicide. So we understand where suicide thoughts come from. We look at the language around suicide. We then talk about how to spot the signs of suicide within somebody and how to create a helping to cope plan, which has six questions that address the person's immediate life support needs. So what we do, we go into a deeper understanding of things like, why is that person started thinking about suicide? What's that pain around? And one of the biggest takeaways from this course is that knowing Thoughts of suicide are not actions. So at this point, we don't actually need to panic. So it's just making people aware. When we're experiencing something like thoughts of suicide, it's highly likely that that experience and those thoughts will pass. But it's really important that we know at that point who to speak to and where and when. Who should undertake suicide first aid training, would you say? Frontline staff. So people within the NHS, people in the services, so any of the police, um, fire brigade, any frontline services, any of those that are caring for those most vulnerable within the community, those working um, in care homes, those people working in schools, pastoral care, um, anybody that is literally helping anybody that could potentially be vulnerable. Yes, yeah, Steve, we've actually had um, somebody from a police force uh, for one of our previous guests on the show who emphasised, Elaine Malcolm emphasised training, 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 and uh, are crucial for those emergency services. Uh, I'm just interested in in whether, to what extent you think it's more applicable for people in, in businesses more generally, for instance, and and who you actually get on your courses? Um, it's applicable for anybody in reality. Uh, the, the simple fact is this. Suicide thoughts are very common. And it's estimated that anywhere between three and a half to five percent of the population at any given time will be thinking about suicide. So that could be anybody in an organisation of any organisation. So what we need to be mindful of, even though this course, really, we should be aiming it at everyone particularly frontline staff, it's we should be focusing on people within the workplace as well, because A, mental health is something that we take to work, but B, thoughts of suicide are not going to go, oh, yeah, OK, I'll just pause there whilst you go to work. It's something that we take with us all of the time. So something that I was said that something that somebody said on my course recently was this. Everybody within every organisation needs to do this because who is that one in five people? one in 20 people, sorry, and it could be somebody you work with. And now, Steve, uh, I understand your, your next Suicide First Aid course is happening early next month. It's on the 3rd and 4th of December. And for anyone listening to uh, this show, um, you can book uh, directly through the jordanlegacy.com website. We'll make that link available on the recording of the show 
that we share on our website. Uh, I assume they can get in touch directly with yourself as well, Steve. Yeah, certainly can. So you can contact me uh, directly through my website, www.mindcanyon.co.uk, or if you would like to discuss MHFA or SFA training, please email me at steve at mindcanyon.co.uk. Great. Now, regular listeners to Jordan Space know that we always end our show on a message of hope. And for anyone out there who's struggling with thoughts of suicide or might be supporting someone who is having such thoughts, what would be your message to them? If you're experiencing thoughts of suicide, talk to somebody about those thoughts. Somebody like Samaritans, somebody like Shell, people that want to listen to you, people that care. And remember, asking for help isn't about giving up. It's about not giving up. That's a really important message. Thank you, Steve. Uh, And thanks so much for joining us today. It's been really inspiring to hear your story and how it's led to you making such a huge difference in supporting those with mental health issues. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, we enjoy another track chosen by our guest, Steve Carp. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, Danny, Paul and I will briefly discuss the key points we've taken away from talking with Steve today. We'll be right back after this. Time for another inspirational quote. Be happy. Be inspired. Hi, this is Gail. I'd like to share one of my favourite motivational quotes. One day you'll tell the story of how you overcome what you went through and it will be someone else's survival guide. Brené Brown. This This is is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Well, Danny Paul, another powerful interview, another great guest. Um, Fascinating. You know, I've I've known of Steve's story, but every time I speak to him, I I seem to learn more about his journey. Paul, Paul, what were some some of the key takeaways uh, from today for you? Yeah, I learned some new stuff. And obviously, we, we know Steve as a trainer and as an excellent trainer. And we had the event, the Let's Talk About Suicide event, where he opened up a little bit about his his own personal journey. And in fact, some of the things in there, he, he didn't even cover today. He covered so much today. I remember other things. It's worth, I'd, I'd recommend people listening to the recording of Let's Talk About Suicide, uh, where I remember him talking about his addiction to going to the gym and and, and almost like a form of self-harm. And so there's still a, so much to tell about, about that. But it was interesting hearing about the immediate crisis he had, the factors around that, the problems at work, the financial issues, and then going back to the trauma and that relived trauma. Um, and I think there's there's so many lessons for today, you know, with uh, people facing financial difficulties. And as Steve said, trauma, you know, creeps up on you. And we've had a previous guest as well, Sonia, talking about burnout and burnout as a trauma experience as well that creeps up on people. It doesn't go away. You don't just go off and have a break and then everything's fine again. It keeps coming back to you. So, you know, important lessons there. And I think it's great to have somebody delivering training. And again, we emphasize the importance of the training. But for somebody with Steve's own experience to be delivering that training as well, I think that really adds value. No, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I've attended Steve's training myself last year. Um, he he comes, you know, you can feel a huge amount of empathy in his style and approach. And, you know, that's clearly coming from someone who's had that that lived experience. Uh, Danny, you know, what, what were some of the key things for, for you from our conversation with Steve? Yeah, really just how easily it would have been for, for him to give up. But he found that strength to pick himself up and to help others. 
and prevent other people struggling with their mental health the way he had. So I just think it's really inspiring how he managed to turn everything around for himself and for others. Definitely. And I think, you know, just final kind of thought thought from myself here, there's a couple of points really, and I think, Paul, you kind of alluded to this a moment ago. What was really interesting for me was when Steve talked about going back to that work environment um, and and really how difficult and challenging that was for him. So I think avoiding what's maybe contributed towards the trauma is is really important. And that might mean someone taking a completely new direction uh, in life. Um, also, just the emphasis you placed on training as, as well. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, just this week, you know, I've had a, a communication from somebody, uh, an organisation I know really well, where one of their team has uh, had an experience with their daughter at university, really concerned. They've, they've travelled up there, brought her back home to safety at home. But they'd undertaken uh, some suicide first aid training through the Zero Suicide Alliance, actually, just the, the brief mm-hmm. uh, training there that uh, is is online. Uh, and they said, thank goodness I did, because I wouldn't have really known what to do. So I think it just emphasises that really everybody should learn these skills because we never know when they might be required. Absolutely agree. And and again, there's another lesson that, you know, you, you, you want to go knock on the Downing Street door, don't you, and demand action. But at the end of the day, it's probably not the uh, the best way to get action, is it? Um, that's a collective approach uh, that they need to be t- uh, you know done differently. But everybody, like you say, everybody can play a part here. Everybody can get involved in the training, and uh, that's the note of hope I take from it. Well, thanks uh, to you both and to our guest, Steve Carr, for joining us today. If you found today's show helpful or simply interesting and insightful, you can listen to the recordings of previous shows on our website at thejordanlegacy.com by visiting the news, events and radio menu at the top of the page. You can also engage with us on social media by following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us on both sites via the username at Jordan Legacy UK. That's it for another show from Danny, Paul and myself. We'd like to wish you a safe, healthy and above all, hopeful rest of your week. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. UK. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio Podcast. Copyright applies. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone, and feel good music. Yawa Radio is about well being, happiness, and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy. Be inspired. This is Yawa Radio.